Last year, when I asked for your questions for my final sermon of the summer, I got two really hard ones about belief in life after death and the supernatural. This year, I put out the same request and got nothing. Not a single question was submitted. I suspect that this is the end of the experiment and the end of summer grab bag question box preaching. Oh well. And yet, tough questions are necessary to shape my thoughts in worship this coming year. It's part of the conversation that goes on between us, a conversation that ministers are trained to pay attention to, even if no one else knows we're having it. I need to answer your tough questions again and again in worship, and not just tell you what I want you to hear. I guess I don't get the easy way out on that conversation. Fair enough. Message heard, though there are a good number in the basket here. The lack of pre-submitted questions for this Sunday left me looking at tough questions floating about in our society for inspiration. Now, I have to tell you, I resisted taking on health care, despite the proposals, the fact that the proposals to reform our health care system dominate the airwaves these days. I even passed up the opportunity to be on a conference call with the president and 10,000 of my closest liberal religious colleagues, <laughs> thinking that I didn't have the energy for one more issue on the long list of things I'm signed up to fight about. And then last week, I read in the newspaper that the Family Research Council, a socially conservative and fundamentalist Christian lobbying and policy organization, has issued instructions for ministers about the appropriate way to discuss to engage in discussions with their congregations about health care reform, complete with agendas for meetings, press releases, and even sample sermons and appropriate, and I put that term in the biggest of quotation marks, biblical verses to warn people about the impending government takeover of health care. Their words, not mine. The sample sermon begins with these words, carefully written, both for maximum political effect and to deny that the line between church and state is being crossed. The sample sermon goes like this. This morning I'm going to take on a hot topic, the government takeover of health care. You might say, it said, Pastor, isn't this a political issue? And my answer, according to the sample sermon, is yes, it's a political issue but it has ethical and moral dimensions that compel me to share how biblical truth applies and how committed Christians should engage it. I will say that I agree completely that profound moral and ethical issues are at stake here. I agree completely that the place of the religious community in our society is to confront moral and ethical issues head on. I even agree completely that sometimes this makes us as religious communities take on issues at the very same time they are being debated in political circles and that the very nature of our participatory democracy depends on voluntary associations such as congregations engaging in debate over policy questions sometimes. But maybe, just maybe, call me nuts, we could or should do this without becoming mindless parrots squawking the talking points of the political party we are personally closest to. 
Unfortunately, the rest of the Family Research Council's sample sermon proves that only rather than actually caring about families, for example, or churches, or even Christian values, the Family Research Council has become a mouthpiece for the most conservative wing of the Republican Party. Shock. I know, it's a shock. Their packet is completely factually inaccurate repeating scare tactics about things like death panels that have again and again and again been proven to be false rumors. Their packet invents mythical funding pathways to scare conservative congregations into believing that the government is out to make us all pay for not only killing grandma, but also countless abortions. In taking on this issue, it's my challenge not to make the same mistake in reverse. It would be far, far too easy for me to cite the facts and figures put together by the current administration with whom I am politically sympathetic, so I won't. It's not my place in this context to take a stand on who should pay for health care or how. If you'd like my opinion, I'd be happy to share that with you in the lobby after the service. Instead, I want to spend some time today on the tough moral and ethical questions that I see are at stake here. Some of them are not so different from the ones that the Family Research Council has identified. Some of them, however, have been largely ignored by groups like this, who seek to define a single way that any Christian should think about this issue. One of the issues I would agree with the Family Research Council is important is the issue of -of end-of-life counseling. I think it's important here, though, to understand what the House of Representatives' current bill does and does not call for, because it's been taken more than a little bit out of context lately. What the House has suggested is that Medicare, that government-run single-payer health care system available to people ages 65 and over, Medicare should be allowed, allowed to pay for consultations between a person and his or her doctor about issues regarding health care at the end of life. In these appointments, people would be allowed to choose for themselves what medical interventions are and are not ones they might want in the event that they could not make their wishes known. Some might choose, for example, for any and all interventions that could possibly prolong their life to be used at whatever cost. Others might say that artificial resuscitation is acceptable, but that they don't want to go on if they are unresponsive and dependent upon a feeding tube for life. The ultimate decision, however, would be left up to the individual in all cases, not a panel, not an expert or a single doctor or a government bureaucracy or an insurance company, not someone in some underground room in Washington, D.C. I firmly believe that people should be allowed and encouraged to make these decisions for themselves. People should be allowed to choose a course of treatment that preserves in whatever way they see it their dignity as they die. This, of course, means that people need to have thought about those decisions and discuss them with their doctors and loved ones long before they are put in a situation where the decisions have to be made. And yet Medicare won't pay for the consultation with a physician about the issue, which means that only people who can pay for it themselves get appropriate counseling. 
This is a moral and ethical issue for me, based in our mutual affirmation of the inherent worth and dignity of all people. People with dignity and worth get to make tough decisions for themselves, and not to have doctors, family members, and sometimes even court systems debate their fate for them. In my experience, I have been in many situations, far too many situations, where people faced the end of their lives. Rarely did they have permission from others or themselves to do it with grace, with strength, and with dignity. Our modern American culture has placed a premium on fighting to stay alive at all cost, and it uses that word, that violent word, fighting to stay alive, No matter the quality of life or the cost of that fight, the financial cost, but also the emotional, psychological, and spiritual cost. Families are left grieving over and over again with no end in sight thanks to the marvels of modern medicine. Long ago, Christian spirituals and hymns sang of death as a return home to a loving God to a peaceful existence in heaven. Too often I have been in hospitals where no such home could be found, where a fitful, painful, sedentary, and unresponsive life in the flesh was held up as a better scenario than the finality and peace of death. And why? I think that maybe it has something to do with a healthcare system that makes its money not from counseling us to make decisions for ourselves, but by keeping us alive on machines by extraordinary artificial means. We need to re-examine our relationship with death. We need to re-examine our relationship with the incentives that our current system has for making decisions, decisions that allow for spiritual healing, where physical healing is unattainable. Predictably, the Family Research Council opposes end-of-life counseling, fearing it might lead to government-funded euthanasia, the ending of someone else's life without their permission because they have a terminal disease. The House legislation doesn't go anywhere near that issue, since euthanasia is, after all, illegal and would remain so. But it's a slippery slope to the Family Research Council, an argument to me that screams, scare your congregation. One that leads me to think that conflating end-of-life counseling with euthanasia is nothing more than a transparent political move. The sample sermon says that the culture of death must be resisted at every point without compromise. Maybe they should sing some of their own hymns, instead of the tune the insurance companies are humming. That sample sermon, notably, leaves out any mention of the 45 million American citizens with no health insurance at all. Why? I do not know. But I I suspect that just maybe it's because there is absolutely no morally defensible position for any Christian of any sort to take that makes this reality okay. In fact, the only system under which such a situation can even be defended is a purely libertarian one, in which every person is out for themselves, in which inequality is a fact of life. Now, I admire people who are able to consistently advocate 
for a libertarian system in all parts of life, and yet I think that they're out of touch. The hyper-individualist, rugged American mythos is not only damaging, but also sorely lacking in reality. The reality is that we are all connected. Nobel Peace Prize recipient and liberal social reformer Jane Addams wrote way back in 1902 that each generation has the responsibility to advance the moral thinking of our society, rejecting the moral tests used in the previous generations. She concluded that to attain individual morality in an age demanding social morality, to pride oneself on the results of personal effort when the time demands social adjustment is to utterly fail to apprehend the situation. So said Jane Adams. This age, I believe, demands social morality in healthcare. To attain it, I believe that it's incumbent upon each of us to understand that none of us gets health care in a vacuum. Most of us have health insurance and therefore access to health care that we like or at least tolerate. Most of us, through our employer or our spouse's employer, through the Veterans Administration or the Medicare program, have some sort of coverage for when we get sick or have an accident. Our employer or the government pays most of the monthly premium, and we make up the rest. Insurance companies count on those premiums being higher than the cost of care, since they are driven by the sole motive of profit. This fellowship provides me with my health insurance through the UUA's health plan. It's a pretty good plan. If you fired me tomorrow, though, I would lose my health insurance in three months, unless I came up with a way to pay for an individual insurance plan on my own or pay the exorbitant extra taxes that it would take for me to be covered by my partner's plan. With no income, either scenario would be difficult, and if I had a pre-existing condition, which thankfully I don't, the former scenario would be impossible. But more than one out of ten people in this country have no insurance at all. This is not to say that they have no health care. It's just that they pay out of pocket for whatever they get. If they can't afford it, they either don't get it or they don't pay for it. In the latter case, those of us with health insurance wind up paying for their health care. Does an MRI scan really cost $1,000? No, it really does not. Not even when all of the vast overhead is taken into account. But part of that $1,000 cost has to pay for the emergency room services used by people with no health insurance and no way of paying for it. Part of that $1,000 cost has to pay for the likelihood that people with no insurance or bad insurance coverage won't bother to see a doctor until their condition has worsened to a point that advanced procedures have become necessary. Part of that $1,000 cost has to pay for malpractice insurance for doctors who are routinely sued by insurance companies seeking to recoup the costs of large payouts for those advanced procedures. If I were, at this very moment, to collapse with acute appendicitis, let's say, I would hope that you would call an ambulance and get me to Northern Westchester Hospital just down the street. 
The bill that I would receive for the necessary emergency surgery, however, would not just reflect the cost of my emergency appendectomy. It would reflect the out-of-control costs of a system in which people are regularly uninsured and underinsured, where profit motives drive insurance companies to ration care, where the emergency room has become the only doctor's office available to the poor. And because of that, my insurance premium might just go up next year. And who would get to pay for that? You would. We are all connected. There's no way around that. And thus, we need to strive to find a social morality of health care and not an individual one. The Family Research Council wants ministers like me to scare people into submission. I think the system that we have is already scary enough for us to act. How? That's the tough question. Maybe we'll discuss that one later, but only if you want to. In a moment, we are going to receive our offering. The offering that we collect supports not only the ministries of this fellowship, but also work in the wider world that we support It has become something of a tradition for us in the month of September to support the after-school program called Learning Links, run by our partners at Neighbors Link. This after-school program provides um, necessary tutoring services to children in our community whose families have no way of helping them with their schoolwork. And so we appreciate your offering both for us and for the, the students of Learning Links. Our offering will now be